everyone. Welcome back to Making the Scene. I'm your host, Eric Sippel. On this podcast, we bring on a guest. That guest chooses a scene from a movie that means a lot to them, sometimes their favorite, sometimes not. And we go into detail on why and how that scene works, from technical angles like editing and lighting, to performance, to whatever random things might pop into our head. The idea being to get into the meat of why a scene really, really works. Today, I am, uh, excuse me, I am joined by Joseph Lewis, and um, how are you doing today, Joe? I'm doing great, Eric. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm, I'm excited <clears throat> to have you on the podcast. Uh, we actually uh, thank just... You very, thank you very much for having me on. Oh, no problem. It's exciting. Right. We actually um, met for the first time in person in Alabama a couple of weeks ago. Right, at Phoenix Fest. It was awesome. And in fact, I, I pitched the idea of this podcast to a table full of, of much better podcasters. And um, and I, I, as soon as I said the idea, both um, Joe and Ken immediately had their scenes ready. I've had other people struggling to pick out a scene, but but you you knew immediately, as soon as this idea came up, you knew what you wanted yeah, to talk about. It, immediately, I knew it had to be the drug deal from the end of Boogie Nights. Because <laughs> literally, this has, been, this has been pretty much my favorite scene in any movie since I first saw it when I was 15. That is that is awesome. I yeah. I'm a big fan of this too. Um, so yeah, so we're we're going to be talking about Boogie Nights today, uh, written and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. I this is the first Paul Thomas Anderson movie I saw, and I actually didn't like it the first time I saw it. I really I, yeah. I when I first saw it, I don't know what it was, but I think I was taking it a little too seriously. And when I realized to go back that I was supposed to be laughing for right. good chunks of it, when I realized that a lot of it was actually a kind of a dark comedy, right. Then I loved it. So that was that was my my trial by fire. The first time I saw it, I thought that was well made, but it just didn't. I don't know. Something was weird. And someone said, mm-hmm. "Go back and watch it." Kind of as a comedy. The tone didn't sit right with you, sort of. Yeah, I think I yeah. think I was just an idiot. I mean, I was my it was my first year in college when this came out, so that makes me mm-hmm. at my peak stupidity, basically. <laughs> um, and I, like I said, I just think I thought I was expecting. I, I thought it was more serious. I was expecting it to be more serious than it had any intention right. of being, even though it's very serious at times. Mm. It's Well, that's the thing with Paul Thomas Anderson's writing. The, the tone always catches you off guard, even in something as heavy and dramatic as Magnolia. There are scenes of ribald humor in that movie that are just hysterical. Oh, absolutely. He's uh, he's a really offbeat and funny writer sometimes. And I... And and this this is the moment when I should note that um, that I'm a big fan of Paul Thomas Anderson, but when forced to name my favorite movie, it is not this Paul Thomas Anderson movie, but it's Magnolia. So that now, is, is my is, is that favorite movie of all time or favorite Paul Thomas Anderson movie? Favorite, that's my stock favorite movie of all time answer. I don't actually have a favorite movie, but I mm. I can get into a conversation about my ideals in cinema and storytelling by answering Magnolia. So I settled on that because I feel like it most exemplifies the kind of filmmaking I like. And what the great thing is, is that Boogie Nights exemplifies a lot of that too. Yeah. um, Which I'm excited to get to talk about, about this movie because of that, because he is a a very passionate filmmaker in terms of the film that gets made. It's, it's a very passion filled um, style of filmmaking. In, in in terms of the style and in terms of just how much how much you can tell that he loves his characters with every fiber <laughs> of his being, <laughs> he, he is he is not a cold or distant uh, filmmaker. In any he way, is he is not. These are his children. Yeah, um, and, and it's great for a movie like this where we have a bunch of of, of fuck ups basically yeah. uh, populating this movie even more so than a lot of his other movies. This is yeah. is is quite a collection of. Um, of oddballs. Um, and, and we're catching, so the scene, um, we're going to be doing as he, as Joe said, the, the drug deal scene. So Joe, why don't you, um, give us an idea of what scene we're going to be watching and why, why this scene? Why did you choose this one? Okay. Um, like I said, I first saw this movie when I was 15. So that was a really like formative time for me in terms of the movies that I was watching and, uh, realizing that I wanted to be a filmmaker myself. And I was already a fan of Quentin Tarantino at the time, who's still was and still is my favorite director. And one of the things I loved about Quentin Tarantino is how expertly he married soundtrack with visuals in every single one of his movies. And then I come around to Boogie Nights and I get to this scene at the end of this like this like epic character study of sorts and get to the drug deal 
and it's just it's like a symphony man <laughs> just the 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 period music and the slow ratcheting up of tension and the just completely off the wall insane performances in it that and the obviously the violent climax of it just completely spellbound me as a teenager and looking at it now like seven years later it's even more impressive to me because just thinking about the way the place in which it falls within the structure of the movie it's so like such a contained sequence in comparison to all of these other sequences that are like expertly orchestrated to include a whole bunch of different characters this one is really just focusing on a select few but really just Dirk this is a very important moment this is Dirk's epiphany at the end of this movie. <laughs> yeah, this, this is his rock bottom in terms of his descent into drug use. and This is his rock bottom. Like it says in the title card right before it, it's a long way down. <laughs> I, I'm excited that you chose this scene because it is almost a movie within a movie. It, it truly is. It's, it, I mean, it introduces a character played by Alfred Molina that we haven't seen until, and haven't even heard of until this title card pops up. It's, right. it is, it's a, it's a bizarre diversion into the, the hell that Dirk's life has become. Right. And, and it is a strange and off-putting hell that his and, life and, has become. And Dirk, at this point in the movie, he's at a low place. He's had a falling out with uh, Jack, the Burt Reynolds character. He's addicted to coke and probably some other drugs, I believe. Uh, he's uh, His music career is not working out very well, possibly because he's singing the Transformers song, but it is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, he's, he's uh, res- turned to prostitution. He just got beat the fuck out of by a bunch of guys and this is this is a last resort in many ways um so before we get into the 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 nitty-gritty of the scene joe um tell the tell the audience a little bit about yourself who who are you joe lewis who are you (laughs) who is joseph lewis well um i am from a little town in virginia that you've never heard of um i love movies with every fiber of my being i've wanted to be a filmmaker pretty much since pretty much since i was 12 and saw pulp fiction for the first time that's re- basically all i've ever wanted to do with my life um i have i've made several short films including the uh kind of sort of pilot for a television series nowheresville which you can watch on youtube at youtube.com slash toasted schizo that's s-c-h-i-z-o and uh, I recently just uh, graduated from a university with a degree in broadcast communication. So I'm apparently I know what I'm talking about, but I kind of think that's bullshit. <laughs> it sounds like you know more about what you're talking about than I do, and this is my show. So enjoy running circles around me as we discuss this scene. Somehow I feel like it's going to be the other way around, but oh, we'll see. <laughs> please, please, come on. Um, so yeah, you should all check out Joe's stuff. Um, I he's. He's a, a fixture in in my um, podcasting and film Twitter circles, and um, I'm just I'm really excited to get to finally talk to him because I think we've I think we've been missing each other on all of the various podcasts that we um, skim through, Joe. I don't think we've actually gotten a chance to really talk, and other than at Phoenix Fest, we haven't sadly. And a big part of that is because until recently, my technology for podcasting was very limited. I finally just bought a proper mic that actually worked with my computer that will connect to the internet properly. For some reason, my laptop won't do shit in terms of Skype. <laughs> so so we're good now. Excellent. Well, then, um, then let us proceed into um, the crazy drug deal scene of Boogie Nights. Let's do it. Um, so well, I think a good place to start is the there's, there's sort of an intro moment to this scene, which is the three characters um, who are Dirk Diggler, um, Todd, who's played by Thomas Jane, and John C. Riley's character, whose name I'm actually blanking on now that I'm talking about it. Reed Rothschild. Reed Rothschild. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I lo- and I love that he has a comic book name. It, it's fantastic. It, it, yeah. He has definitely has they're, they're, these. Yeah. And Dirk Diggler does too, actually. Yeah, obviously not his real name, but and those two meet. They t- they bond over Star Wars immediately. <laughs> so. And um, the, the, Thomas Jane is in this scene, and I, we'll talk more about yes. his performance later. But this, I didn't know who Thomas Jane was when I saw this movie, and I actually Neither didn't did I. know this was Thomas Jane until much later after I knew who he was. Mm-hmm. and realized that I had seen him already a billion times in this madness of a scene. Yeah. Um, but they pull up in, in Dirk's uh, muscle car, <laughs> and 
and there's this it's this is a, a, a kind of funny intro of the three of them looking like bumbling fools walking yeah. into the the stupidest possible idea basically it is yeah like Todd's walking up these stairs and he's like he's like feigning swagger like he thinks he knows exactly what they're gonna go in and do even more so than we realize at this point because we don't know exactly what he has up his sleeve yet whereas whereas Dirk and and uh, Reed are a little more reserved about the whole situation. And we get this great... So, you know, we come into this scene knowing that the intention is to rip this character off. They're going to go to this person's house, they're going to sell them baking soda for $5,000 and get out. And that's the idea. And even that just sounds like these three are dead. This this could easily go tits up at any moment. It's going to be a colossal mess. And then we get this first indication of the tension rising, which is Todd stepping out and showing that he's got a a fucking gun. Like... He's got a, he's brought a gun to this meetup. Right. And and that's the first moment that you realize that this is already escalating. We haven't even started yet and it's already escalating. Yeah. And that's that's even foreshadowed a bit like at the very moment the shot that follows them up the stairs at the very moment that shot begins before the car even pulls up you see you see the house in the background and the camera is perfectly leveled with it but the road that the car is pulling up on it's you can tell it's going to be a steep downhill oh. it, it, as soon as you turn left so I, it's immediately you get the sense of this downward of this downward descent i i love that i, I didn't yeah. notice that that it's the area the house is at a totally is totally level and the street yeah. is is downhill um and it's great because i actually think this starts a, a really common theme in this in this movie which is use of foreground and background things that there's a lot of depth to what's happening in all of these absolutely. scenes and it starts right here absolutely um, so yeah, they, so. they, they, they pop up the stairs and, and, and I, I also love you get, I mean, John C. Wright, Reed falls walking up yeah. the steps. <laughs> um, and everything about this scene again, just feels like, <coughs> excuse me, like a mess is coming. And, mm-hmm. and I, what I love is that as soon as they enter the house, there's this black cage door in front yes. of the house. And, and Paul Thomas Anderson is an interesting director in that he, he'll do these really, really like moving like shots are all over the place the camera's panning the camera's pushing in and then every once in a while he'll just hang with a shot right for a really to add, long to, time to add emphasis or to increase tension and and we get that here when they walk in and we just get this really long shot of this black door closing just, on them yes and sister christian starts playing and it's like that's not an ominous song but it has never been more ominous than it is in this moment <laughs> and, and i this is like what's interesting and, and we get this on the outro too the the use of um of music in this scene is really interesting because when we're outside we don't have that you know we right. don't have songs and then we get it as soon as we come in as soon as we're in the house the pop music Right, Stop. and it and it's very. All three of the songs in the sequence are extremely upbeat and poppy, completely contrasting what is happening in the scene. It, yeah, and, it, and the the so there's there's a lot of things that contribute to the tension of the scene because as soon as yeah. we're in the house, every, I mean, you can just tell something bad is going to go wrong. You don't know what it is, and you and and if you thought you know what it was, you're probably wrong the first time you watch it. You're definitely wrong. There's no way you could predict firecrackers. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> for, just for one thing. <laughs> as soon as you walk in, there there's so much going on in the scene. There's already three characters in the house. There's there's right. Alpha Merlina's character Rayhan. Rayhad. Rayhad, excuse me. Yeah. Um, and his bodyguard, and then the this character Cosmo, who's Cosmo. Uh, who's just setting off firecrackers in the house as soon as you walk in. I mean, as soon as you cut to the inside, there's Alpha Merlina smoking crack out of a out of a pipe, right. and Fa- this facing ca- away from the camera in the silver then- robe. Yeah, and Cosmo and setting off firecrackers, just pacing around the room, and it's so bizarre. <laughs> I- <laughs> just a thorough mindfuck for the audience <laughs> this might be some of the best use of sound in a movie i've seen in terms of like increasing the tension purely through sound if you if you had nothing else going on just the the relentless pounding of this pop music and the, this the, the punctuation of those firecrackers is is nerve-wracking ten minutes is a 10 minute scene and those firecrackers yeah. don't stop for most of it they don't and it, it keeps the viewer just as on edge as these three dudes are as they go to sit down <laughs> on this couch. <laughs> and, and it's great because the three guys are, are obviously, you know, they're coked up. Everyone in this scene almost is coked up. Yeah. And they're strung is out. It, is anyone not coked up? I'm going to guess the bodyguard might the not bodyguard be. The bodyguard probably isn't. He seems he seems pretty chill, and I'm not sure. Cosmo might be on a psychedelic. I'm not sure that 
Cosmo is coked up because he doesn't seem to care what's going on in the scene. He doesn't. <laughs> otherwise, but but uh, Rayhad is 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 absolutely out of his mind, coked up, and the three of them are so strung out. And every time a firecracker goes off, they jump constantly, over and over again. And you watching, it's funny how when you watch a character jump in a scene, it mm-hmm. it gets in your head. Like if that firecracker was something you would have tuned out normally. Seeing yeah. a character jump a couple of times, suddenly you become attuned to that sound yourself. And you don't you don't even need to see them jump anymore because now you're freaking out by those sounds as well. Right, right. Because because you've started to put them put yourself in their place and you're like nervously anticipating it just as much as they are. Yeah, and John C. Yeah. Riley is is sort of the master at selling the jump at the at the firecracker. He is he, freaking he out. He is. I noticed that like sitting in the center of this couch, like. Todd is to his left, like tr- trying to play it as cool as possible. When a firecracker goes, goes off, he does he doesn't really jump that much. Like you can, you can see him flinch, but he tries to keep his cool. Dirk on the other side is so out of it at this point that he jumps, but it's just it's the most half-hearted jump in the world. <laughs> Whereas Reed in the middle, just like oh oh holy shit. <laughs> he, no one wants to be in this scene less than than Reed Rothschild. He is exactly he has no desire to be in this. And so one, one thing I noticed, and there's there's two bits of costuming that I want to mention. It was actually the first time I really talked about costuming much in this. But there's okay. there's sort of t- um, actually maybe three important costuming choices that are made in this scene that that. That I like. The first is that that is Todd's outfit, which is pure '80s, and he's and I realized in this now that I've seen the other movie and come back to it, this Todd is dressed like the driver in Driver, the Ryan Gosling movie. Oh my god, you're so right. He, he's got I, a, I hadn't even picked up on that. He's got a black. He's got a black coat with like a thing on the back. It's not the same thing. It's not the scorpion, but it's it's right. exactly it's, the it's same. Close coat. enough. Yeah, it is one of those coats. It's like a like I look how how hard ass I am with my coat with like a skull stitched onto the back or whatever the hell. Right. He's got. So you have Todd walking in trying to play like he's the badass. You have um, Alfred Molina's character who's dressed in a silver open robe and a speedo, essentially. Yeah, with, with, a, nothing, with nothing else on. With just like a gold chain is like all, all he has left. <laughs> and, and he's wandering around like nothing in these bikini briefs and, and, a, and a robe and just hamming it up the entire scene. He's ranting in this robe with his speedo out for the entire movie. And it is so disconcerting. Like his his entire outfit is just so off-putting, um, and then you also have the the bodyguard's outfit, and he's in this like really flowing outfit, and that's important mm-hmm. because we get this one brief moment where we can see a gun yeah. underneath his clothing, and that and it's a, yeah, I when, like when he, when he goes to pick up the baking soda, and I, I think it's Reed that notices the gun, and it's like I believe the shot is even sort of a bit slow motion when he sees the gun. It is. It's a slow it's a slow motion scene of just like mm-hmm. his very it's almost, it looks like silk his his shirt opening up and there being yeah. a gun holster inside. Um and that's it. And those and those are it's interesting the way that you know you have you have costuming that kind of gets at, you know, the mania of a character with Alfred Molina's character and you just have mm-hmm. this functional outfit that if he had been dressed differently, if the bodyguard had been dressed differently, we couldn't have seen the gun. So he get they sort of you can tell the style is somewhat there. Right. So that we can get that lovely short slow motion shot of the fact that oh shit, there's a gun in the scene. There's another yeah. gun now. Right. What? Whereas with uh, Dirk and Reed, the costuming doesn't particularly stand out, and that's that's kind of correct because that they, they have no interest in being here in the first place. Their function is to not be here. They they have come <laughs> to like get in and out as quickly as quickly as possible. They're all business. <laughs> The the um the the great thing back to the sound that you know we didn't get to talk about with the with the music so we've got yes. the firecrackers going off and we have the right. music and and what I love about the use of music in this scene is that it's not just there it's very common in movies for people to try to use pop music as counterpoint for horrific scenes that's not right. that's not, especially in in since Quentin Tarantino in, yeah. in um, Reservoir Dogs we've gotten that a lot. Yeah, ever since Mr. Blonde cut that ear off, like pe- people have been trying to imitate it. People are trying often, to ruin pop songs. Poorly. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. What I love about the music in this is it's totally motivated. This is not music that that is just there for the viewer's point of view. It's there because Rahad is a pop music fiend, and he's created a series of of and I'm not I'm making I'm not making this up. Awesome mixtapes. <laughs> and, and this is number six. Yes, he has a he has <laughs> tapes that he has written aw- awesome mixtape on and numbered, and he is filled with his own pop music. So all of this music we get in the scene is his soundtrack. He has given the soundtrack for this sequence all on his own because he is obsessed with just terrible eighties pop songs. 
And of course, the devil is playing ta- awesome mixtape number six at this very moment. <laughs> <laughs> I've been making awesome mixtape jokes for like whatever fifteen years since this movie yeah. came out. I've just it's like one awesome mixtape <laughs> joke after another. Um, and what I love about since the music is motivated, and I always I've become really interested in things like lighting and sound that are motivated in the scene instead of part of the sort of either lighting that's there because the art wants it or music that's there because it's soundtrack. I kind of I'm always interested in scenes that that create their light and sound as motivated artifacts in the scene and I like it because you get moments like there's a middle in the middle of the scene uh, Alfred Molina's character is ranting about loving how oh he's giving the explanation of why he has these mixtapes because he doesn't want to listen to songs in the order why do they have to put them in the order that i want to listen to my order and what's great is he's starting to get scary because yeah he's he's he's, he's getting more and more fevered as he goes on and then all of a sudden bam the music's gone tape cuts out (laughs) and (laughs) And, and it's like it's it's like this weird like brechtian moment that's that that suddenly reminds the audience that they're watching a movie (laughs) everything stops he looks angry and there's a moment where you're sort of not sure is he gonna lose it now yeah is this the moment when this guy who has been smoking an awful lot of crack during this scene Mm. is he going to lose it and then and you get and, and then you get this like weird, these are the things I love about Paul Thomas Anderson. In the middle of this tension building, in the middle of everyone freaking out because the music just stopped and he's ranting, suddenly you get this sequence of shots that perfectly establishes what's going on in the tape player. You get a, a it pushes in onto the cassette player, it cuts to a super close-up, and Anderson loves his super close-ups. Yes, this, this super close-up of the tape stopping, and then it cuts to a super close-up of the little lit-up arrows of which direction the tape is going, mm-hmm. and the arrow flips to show that the tape is reversed direction. And then it cuts back to the tape of it moving again, and then cuts back into the scene as the music starts again. And it's this moment which is just sort of like, and it focuses you on the mechanics of the tape the same way everyone else is because they're all so horrified by this music stopping. And I love that he just sort of cuts away to this probably 10 seconds worth of the tape flipping. Over. And and remember that this moment is just following on the heels of uh, Rahad standing up in front of everyone and... putting a gun under his head <laughs> and and like faking them out like he's gonna shoot himself and like everyone is just everyone could not be more on edge or so they think and suddenly like music cuts out and the audience just doesn't know what to do with themselves <laughs> it's, it's it's so hor- and it's funny because when i I've, I've watched the scene like probably 10 times now and mm-hmm. even though i've taken very detailed notes on it this is such a fevered scene that i have i have trouble remembering the chronology yeah. Of which moments come when. Because you're right, I was thinking that the scene with the tape flipping over happened before he pulls out his gun, but it's not. It's after right. he pulls out his gun. And it, because the whole thing is such a nightmare. This entire <laughs> scene is just a nightmare. D- just the the way the tension in this sequence is orchestrated, it, you know, they call they called Hitchcock the master of suspense, but this is as good as any Hitchcock sequence in terms of suspense. It really is. It, it's, it's one Be- of the best tension builds I've ever seen. It, it, it does what true suspense sequences are supposed to do, which is play the audience like a piano. <laughs> <laughs> like, there are lulls, there are highs, and then it's a slow build and finally explodes. <laughs> and, and what's great, you know, Hitchcock always says, you know, like, if you cut to a bomb under the table, that's suspense. You know, a bomb going off isn't suspense. A, right. a bomb under the table is. And what's amazing about this mm-hmm. scene is we know there's a bomb under the table, but those firecrackers keep going off. And right. so it always feels like the bomb is going off constantly over and over again through this scene. You, you're you expecting that release to happen, and then mm-hmm. it doesn't, and the scene just keeps going. And That's, that's and, very true. And it's just – it's over and over again. It's and You're right. It completely plays you because and, – and it gets to the point where you're no longer sure what can go wrong because you have – Alfred Molina's character, he pulls out a gun, this, like, beautiful, silvered handgun, puts a bullet into it, and plays Russian roulette with himself. For right. no good reason. <laughs> uh, just just to show off that he it's will. Establishing immediately how just thoroughly deranged this guy is. It, it, and then you have the fact that there's this, his very terrifying bodyguard in the background, and and, yeah. and he's he's measuring the fake cocaine they've given them, so you don't know if mm-hmm. he's going to figure out what's going on. Right, and. The, l- this could go wrong at any moment if that bodyguard knows what he's doing at all. <laughs> and, 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 you know, one thing you had mentioned to me was the use of background action. I think this is a good time to talk about that because yeah. a lot of the tension happening is is Cosmo in the background or the bodyguard in the background. There's a lot right. of things going on in the background of the scene. 
Mm-hmm. I, w- I was thinking that this is just a, a tangent that occurred to me while you were talking about the firecrackers earlier. Doesn't Cosmo in this sequence kind of function the same way the Gimp does in the basement sequence in Pulp Fiction? Like just just this extremely bizarre character that acts as a counterpoint to even more horrific shit that's happening around him. <laughs> the thing that's so weird that it almost unmoors you from reality. Everything else yes. you can maybe keep your head, but the fact that like you're right, like just like the Gimp, the fact that there's someone setting off firecrackers with complete disregard to what's going on in the room. Yeah. Like he could, he could not be more removed from this situation and that's what kind of makes him terrifying. You know what I realized that there's one moment in the scene where he sort of interacts with the scene that I didn't realize and, the, and so what one of the times when when the music cuts off, I think actually, it's when the tape goes off and they're all and the tape flips over and they're all freaking out and the and the firecracker goes off again and 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 uh, Rahad gives his like, oh, don't worry about him. He's Cosmo. He's Chinese. That's why he likes setting off firecrackers nonsense. And he walks over to Cosmo and he like rubs his head and like smacks him on the butt. And then he walks away. And for a moment, Cosmo turns around, lights a firecracker and throws it at his head. Yeah. Like he actually, it's the one time he interacts with anyone. He throws a firecracker at Rahad's head mm-hmm. after being smacked on the butt by him. Like, <laughs> dude, go away. Like, I know, I, I, because you get the feeling that he treats this poor kid as like a toy. Yeah, yeah, it, totally his boy toy. That was the sense that I got during that moment. <laughs> and, and I love that he just takes a moment to be like, I wish I could blow your head up. Like, yeah. that's just the impression you get in that one moment that, that if Cosmo had his way in this scene, he would probably throw a larger firecracker at yeah. Rahad's head. And I do love that. And the rest of the time, he's just back to back to throwing firecrackers. Back to throwing firecrackers. The, I, I would love to see just like a one-shot comic book about the origin of Cosmo, <laughs> because, because because this this guy this has to be like Stockholm syndrome at this point is the impression I get from the way that he interacts with Rahad in the scene. <laughs> I, I do think it's interesting because there's very subtle indications, you know, besides that 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 Rahad, you know, that he that he might be gay because because yeah. the other thing is that if you notice that when Todd says he knows him, he knows him from Party Boys, which I believe is the strip club that he works at yes you're right so so that seems to be to be his in and i I do like that that's not really a big deal in this scene you know there's not it's not really a call out it's there as the subtext to his character it's it's there but it's not made a big deal out of yeah it's it's there's there's so much mania going on with his character that who he is beyond his kind of drugged up mania is really hard to get Mm -hmm. to get at i mean this, this is the kind of person that beyond putting a, a gun to his head and playing Russian roulette stops the scene twice to sing along with the songs. Right. And, and I, I, I love that so much. I love how much both the character and obviously Paul Thomas Anderson revels in just how awesome these songs are. <laughs> <laughs> like he, all of that passion is put on front street in this sequence. It's a, it's a great use of, of eighties pop music that I otherwise mostly dislike with the exception right. of 99 balloons, which I do like, right. but um, but so anyways, I'm sorry we, we got off track. I want to talk about the background action because yes, there's yes. a lot going on and and in the background, you know, there's always this is a very deeply shot scene. I, one thing I noticed lighting wise is that they use the use of lighting helps emphasize the background stuff because there's mm-hmm. it's almost all motivated lighting in the scene. There's chandeliers, there's lamps, there's these weird like blue window things. But the way he uses it is that there's lighting at all these different levels in the scene so that you have back in the room where the bodyguard is is doing the drug stuff there's like a chandelier over him and then back in a in a bedroom there's a light on in the bedroom behind there and it makes the space feel huge this house feels humongous just this one room and l- like you were saying a lot of the lighting is uh practical within the scene and so so much of it is in the background that it it does leave the backgrounds illuminated but it often leaves the people in the foreground in in a shade of darkness you're which right. i think is really important yeah you're right the the yeah. lighting is all the walls it, the, a lot of the times the characters are sitting in in subpar lighting yeah during, in, during in, the actual in, scenes in shadow really yeah yeah it's 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 that's, that is a, a really excellent point that I hadn't realized. Whereas mm-hmm. the walls and um, and other rooms are are extremely well lit. There are some very hot mm-hmm. lighting bits in this. You know, like there are lamps along the wall. There are the chandeliers that give this very bright these bright pops all over the scene. Right. Um, but but and, and and obviously this house that they're in, it's it's very ornate. It's very impressive. The the well lit background could kind of be taken as what they or at least Todd was expecting 
when they went in, and then them in the center in darkness is what they actually got. I, I, I yeah, you're absolutely yeah. correct. It's, it gives this sense of like you know it feels like it feels very rich all around them. It's it's very wealthy and ornate all around them, and there they yeah. are on this couch in in very muted low contrast. Lighting. Yeah, the the lighting as much with as much as what's actually happening in the scene is a perversion of how this was originally supposed to go. It, totally. Yeah. And, and the other thing you get out of all that depth with the lighting is um, that one thing... That, okay, so this cinematography is by Robert Ellswit, who's a cinematographer yes. that I like a, a great deal. I think he's excellent. He does Magnolia and a lot of Paul Thomas mm-hmm. Anderson's movies, in fact. Um, and one thing I really like about him is that he goes hard for multicolored lighting in scenes. There are... There's a lot of different colors going on. A lot of times cinematographers tend towards, especially now with digital photography, you end up with a lot of very monochrome lighting setups. Very very monochrome, nothing that particularly stands out, a little bland even. Yeah, whereas this is, there are blues, there are oranges. There's blues, there's red. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's it is a very but it never quite it never goes to garish but it's funny we, I mentioned as a sort of a joke the the driver thing but it's something mm-hmm. that that um um Nicholas Wendig uh, Renf Reffin Reffin I Reffin? think Reffin I don't know that sounds wrong but I've heard <laughs> other people say it that way <laughs> it's the same kind of lighting that he uses in like in uh the in the driver and in Only God Forgives it's the same kind of thing where you have this very diverse palette of lighting colors. That's true. Going on. And and I like that because, again, it kind of contrasts the scene in this case where you have this, like, kind of exciting, happy, like, ostentatious lighting design Mm -hmm. while these characters, again, in the middle are, like, these strung out, poorly lit human beings. Right. It's... so it, so in a sense, the lighting kind of functions the same exact way the music does. Yeah, it totally yeah. does. It, it it calls out certain areas while while forcing the the important areas to feel very ugh, and and like kind of un, under. You can just tell that there's dread happening. That this little and, circle that they're in is just waiting for something to go wrong. And just highlighting that tension even more. Totally, it's totally. so great. Um, and and yeah. and as you said, you know the you have. A great deal of motion going on in the background, even though there's people in the background. Cosmo is always moving in the background, and you can't always see yeah. him there. But you yeah, always, you're not sure where he's at. But you'll just kind of wander into the scene and throw a firecracker, mm-hmm. and then wander back out. and And occasionally, you'll see the bodyguard look up, and you don't know why. Right, he's looking up. That, that's one thing I love about the sequence is that at the beginning when they're entering you get several like very wide shots and it establishes the geography of this room really, really well so that as the scene progresses when he starts using these tighter camera angles and like you said Cosmo coming in and out of the bathroom or not bathroom background <laughs> <laughs> I don't know maybe he went to the bathroom and like the bodyguard doing his thing with the with the baking soda it it puts you even more on edge because you you know how you know how this room is laid out. Yeah, it, it yeah. does. That is one of the key aspects of any kind of tension or action filmmaking that we lose a lot is the proper establishment of geography. Yes. And and this is a big room and it's actually a fairly wide open room and it would be easy to take that for granted and not establish what's going mm-hmm. on. But because he does, you know there are these doors everywhere. You know that there's this little spot where the bodyguard is. You know that there's a little alcove with a bar. Um, which they use when the gunfire starts, they hop into. So when the gunfire actually starts, you actually have a good sense of where everyone is in the room, even though it's kind of a big open room. That's true. Um, so the let's talk a little bit about Paul Thomas Anderson's um, shot selection, because I okay. having having done a couple of these podcasts so far, I'm used to directors who have taken who feel like they've they've storyboarded out their scene very carefully, that they have very careful shot selection, but. Paul Thomas Anderson really feels like he shoots things from as many different angles and distances and sometimes moving cameras and sometimes stable cameras and that I get the feeling that a lot of this is done in the editing room, the, the uh, scene construction. Like- like he like he shoots it a million different ways and then picks the best moments once it once he gets to the cutting room. Is, is that the impression that you get as well? Yeah, definitely. Like I don't and honestly for a scene as complex and complicated as this one and for some of the other sequences in the movie, like I think that's probably like the best way to do it because there's so much going on that it would be with a like a standard approach to shot design, it would almost be impossible to capture every little nuance 
in the way that it needs to be captured. And and as a director, Paul Thomas Anderson generally tends to disregard and reject the master shot, close up, over shoulder, cut back and forth kind of thing that you get in standard right. Hollywood filmmaking. You don't see a lot of that from him. That's true. It, and and he's he's not he's definitely a director who's not opposed to a shot calling attention to itself if it <laughs> needs to. <laughs> yeah, he he likes he likes the shots to be characters in the in the filmmaking as well, you know. He yes. his shots his some some directors go out of their way to make sure you don't notice the editing. You don't notice the mm-hmm. shot selection whereas uh, Anderson there's a lot of push-ins and pull-outs in the scene. There's a lot yeah. of camera moves, um pans or um, sometimes when characters are ranting, the camera will just pan back and forth as they move across the room. Right. Um, the only, cause you know, when I do this, I try to look for a rhythm to the shot selection and editing in a, in a scene. And I found that I was kind of failing at this in this one. And the only, there's only one that I would say really consistent shot selection structure that he uses in the okay. scene. And what it is, it's most of the scene when, when Alfred Molina is ranting in the middle of the room, mm-hmm. we get a series of shots that all kind of do the same thing, which is either shots that are straight on him with him more or less in the center of the frame that kind of treat it as him performing, like right. him on stage. And then you get shots that are reaction shots of the three guys on the couch looking like, what the hell is going on? How are we trapped in the room with this? Not right. And and generally just that medium three shot of the of the boys, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. You get that medium three shot of the of the boys and you mm-hmm. get and there there seems to be two shots that he uses a lot to get across that audience feel. One is just yeah. him in the frame, kind of the medium shot of just him in the frame. And occasionally he cuts back further where you get the sort of um the, like the silhouettes of the three boys on the couch at the back of their mm-hmm. heads. And him, right. and him ranting in front of them. But all that sort of gives the sense of uh, this, Ray Hod having basically performing for them. That's that's so true. And I'm so I'm so, that's that's a great point. I'm so glad you pointed that out because like that actor audience dynamic that you were talking about, that takes place like right before the music cuts out. Yeah. Yeah. And You're, so it, it, it just it further removes you from what's happening. <laughs> yeah, it, it does. It, yeah. It, it it sometimes and it makes you feel like you are you know you're an enforced audience member to Rehad's <laughs> manic um, scale up of of ranting. Like he's just so happy to have people in the room to, to rant at and and you don't you don't want <laughs> to be. In he the doesn't room. have a podcast. <laughs> yes, unfortunately, he's he's stuck just bringing in druggies to yeah. his house. Um, but yeah, but other than that, there isn't a lot. I mean, you get a lot of you know. It, but but the other side of that is is that doesn't mean that. Paul Thomas Anderson is not thoughtful about his shot selection. He definitely feels like he shoots from as as much as he can, but it also doesn't feel like he doesn't... He has a very keen understanding of what a camera should be doing. Like, um, there's the scene when, near the end of the scene, we get the... We get, you know, they've made the deal. Everything looks good. They can just leave. Mm -hmm. They go to get up and leave. And Todd on the couch does not get up and sort of starts muttering to himself that what he, he doesn't want to go. It's not time to go yet. There's something else I want from you. And he's muttering to himself. And and Mm -hmm. Anderson does this very long, slow push in on Todd. It's a very slow shot as we stick with him. And we get maybe one cut away from that and then back to the push in. And that is a very intentional shot. That reminds me of. Uh, the Godfather, and there's a scene in The Godfather where Michael Corleone finally sort of comes into his own, and he describes the plan mm-hmm. that he's going to use to take out um, Salazzo in the in the restaurant, and right. it's the same thing, just a character sitting on a chair and a slow push in, and that is a really powerful thing to use when a character is building themselves up mm-hmm. to a moment, because the closer we get, the closer they get to their their epiphany or their moment, and and you know so. Anderson knew what he was doing in there. He wasn't just randomly right. throwing shots at the wall. That's a, that is a deliberate shot. That That's totally true. And like you were saying, the shot slowly pushes in on Todd as he's ranting. And anytime we do cut away, it's generally to uh, Rahad, who's just, who at this point has no choice but to just listen until he finishes <laughs> and then blow him away. But the shot on uh, Rahad is also very, very subtly pushing in on him. So it's kind of mimicking the action of that shot so that the audience won't be taken out of the rhythm. I I like that. That's excellent. That is excellent. Um, Yeah, Anderson loves... Anderson loves moving cameras, either whether it be a zoom or a push-in or a a tracking shot. He loves steady cam shots, and we get a good selection of various types of shots that he likes in this. There are... You know, we we pan across the room at various times. We... Mm -hmm. Sometimes he just... He tracks along with characters. It's... He loves dynamic camera work. Yes. 
but at, at one very key moment in this scene, all he does is let the camera sit on Mark Wahlberg's face. I, I am so glad you brought this up because I wanted to talk about this shot because because it, it's another epiphany moment. It, it, what is so? I'm curious. So we, you know, the, the Jesse's girl is playing and. Yeah. And Rahat is, is singing along with it, and we cut to Mark Wahlberg, and all sound but the music drops out. We can see Reed's mouth moving but can't hear what he's saying, and we're just on this vacant expression right. on Dirk Diggler. And I and I am really curious, what you're, what is he thinking? What is going through Dirk's head in this shot? Okay, well, when, when, it cuts, when it first cuts to Dirk and all we're hearing is the music, what's the first lyric of the song that we hear? Do you know? No, what is it? I play along with the charade. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. So, so that that's immediately a comment on what's happening in the scene. But Dirk at the, the I th- I think this is him realizing what we were talking about that yes, things are as bad as they seem. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is a horrifying look on his face because it's not it it's not it's, it doesn't like him thinking. It mm. doesn't look like he's happy or sad. He almost looks he's a little mad like a little insane at this moment like yeah and and, and it's a slow build-up to that anger too like prior to this shot in the scene like he's he's obviously very like nervous and still probably a bit drugged out going into this deal and he's not he's not very forthcoming with any emotion but when we get to this shot at first it's just like blank face and then it slowly builds up to anger, like you said. And then as soon as the shot breaks, he stands up and suddenly he's the one calling the shots. Like, hey, guys, it's time to go. There's so. this great moment where he like actually like looks down and grimaces and puts his hand to his temple. Like, yeah. And you can just tell like that's it's like a breaking moment. Like he's staring and he feels trapped and he's almost like losing it. Yeah. And then he just has that moment where he's like, what the fuck is going on? You know, like you could just see like he finally kind of realizes I, th- I think on some level, this is Dirk realizing, hey, I'm better than this. Let's get the <laughs> fuck out of here. <laughs> I, I love scenes like this where directors yeah. feel like they can hang with a character as they think. There's, mm-hmm. I remember reading a review by Roger Ebert of Jackie Brown, back when Jackie Brown came out, which yeah. is one of my favorite movies, by the way. I'm a, a S- Jackie, same, same here. Absolutely. Fantastic movie. And there's a scene near the end after all the deals have gone bad and um, – it's Samuel Jackson and Robert De Niro in the car, and Robert De Niro makes a comment, and 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 Ordell Roby, who's Samuel Jackson's character, is like, "Hold on, let me think." And he and, and he, you see and you see the vein pop out. Yes, and he and, yes. and the camera just hangs with you, hangs with him while he thinks. Any other movie would have had him make a decision immediately, but yeah. we actually hang with him while he thinks, and it's it's both tension building and it also just seats you in that feeling of pieces clicking together and and it's so hard to do that as a director and i'm sure you know this having put stuff together you get afraid when you're when you're hanging with a shot that long you start to get nervous that you're boring everyone you get nervous that you're boring everyone but it is absolutely one of the best ways to put the viewer in the headspace of the of the character that's being focused on i can't i can't remember who uh, ken mutual friend ken was telling me about this i can't remember where he heard this quote from but someone was saying that one of the most powerful things that you can see happen on screen in a movie or a TV show is watching the moment when a character makes a decision. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and most movies are afraid to do that. It is hard to do that. It's hard. Yeah. It's hard to get a character to do that. And it, it's so many subtle things happening. It's performance. Because most movies are so much, their, their plot is so much on wheels. Yeah. That, that it, it, it won't stop to, to, to play out the moment that makes it make sense on a character level. Exactly. And yeah. and it's those moments that make a scene work. And it's funny because yeah. it's those moments that make a scene rewatchable. We, one of the things I got out of the scene that I was, I was not expecting, Joan, I'm really mm-hmm. glad you chose this because this is a favorite scene from a favorite movie and I still managed to pull things out. And for the first time watching this, I realized that Todd did not think this deal was going to go down well. He came into this expecting hit Rehad to reject what they were doing. And right. so there's this moment when he, and this is another great moment of hanging with a character. So Rahad mm-hmm. goes, all right, what's the price? And there's this long scene of Todd laughing. He can't yeah. answer the question. He's just, he's laughing and the camera only cuts away once or twice to show Rahad. We don't know what he's thinking at all. Right. Um, and Todd is laughing, laughing, laughing. And then he finally goes oh, five grand. And when, when Alfred Bellino, when Rahad says, Sure, and then the, and his bodyguard just walks up and hands him the money. There is a moment on 
Thomas Jane's face, where it is clear he's like, shit, I was expecting to turn this down so that I could pull the gun and rob him. I was was going to be my opening. I now believe pretty firmly that Todd's intention was for the deal to go south so that he would have an excuse to pull that gun and rob the safe. That that's so true, man. I hadn't even noticed that myself. That's a great call. And even when the bodyguard hands him the money, he even looks at the bodyguard and he kind of just incredulously goes, five grand? <laughs> like, real? <laughs> like, he was never expecting that it was actually going to go down this easily. He was totally like, no. conning he, his friends to get him in this house to he rob was, this guy. He, he, was, he was not supposed to get this far in the level of bringing <laughs> the weapons out. <laughs> and, and I think that's why he ends up having to build himself up to the moment of demanding it, because yeah. he was expecting an opening, and he didn't get his opening and there's a scene where if we hadn't gotten those long moments of him freaking out and laughing mm-hmm. and answering the question and the shots of him reacting all of those things build up to this subtext to the scene that you don't need to understand the emotions of the scene but the more you watch the more you can go that's what that character was doing right. that was his motivation in that and it doesn't reject what you already knew it enhances right the scene um and i i do love I love the long shots in the scene for for a director who is as dynamic and and shot lovey as as Anderson. Mm-hmm. Man knows when to hold a shot, <laughs> and he does absolutely. And in this and in the scene, it's so important because, as you know, the longer you hold a shot without cutting, the the more tense. It yeah, because <laughs> you're waiting. What's going to happen when this cut happens? And what's great yeah. is sometimes he's great because sometimes nothing happens when that. Sometimes cut happens. it's completely mundane. <laughs> <laughs> totally totally um so but other, t- but other times it's shocking <laughs> which we learn at the end of the sequence <laughs> um one thing before we get to like the the catharsis of okay. the sequence i want to talk about is performance wise obviously alfred molina is out of his head amazing in this scene he's he's so incredible like prior to seeing this movie i think the only thing i had seen him in was spider-man 2 and just seeing him playing this character coked out of his head, just not even not even remotely on the same planet as anyone in this movie or the world at large, <laughs> was mind-boggling. And he's playing almost the exact same note that you described with the music, where on the surface, he is entirely happy. He's, right. he's, he wants friends, he wants to talk about his music, he, you know, like on the surface, this is the most genial man in the world, but there's yeah. this undercurrent of mania, like he is not happy, he's manic, he's, he's gonna lose his shit at any moment, and because of the way he plays it, it's... Over the tiniest thing, too. <laughs> exactly, like, he is, he's terrifying because he seems so happy on the surface, and you know it's not true, and the music right. plays into this falsity of happiness that he is pretty much maintaining all on his own. Right. But but the, the the performance that surprised me in this going back to it, because Melina is obviously phenomenal. This is Melina's mm-hmm. scene, you know, this is this is just a one of those I'm gonna own the movie kind of scenes. Yeah. <laughs> but but who's amazing is Thomas Jane. Yes. I, I, you know, I saw him in other movies after this, like Deep Blue Sea, and I really thought he wasn't a very good actor, and then I realized this was him. He is really, really good in this scene. Yes, I'm. I'm. I'm struggling to to describe his performance because on some level it's almost just as manic as Alfred Molina's. Like not at first, but it reaches that height. Yeah, he's he's like you know he he laughs randomly like that scene where he's laughing, he's building up to demanding the safe money. Yeah, and then. So after he demands, he, so he, so Todd demands money in the floor safe, and he gets this great rambling monologue about yeah. how he wants the money in the floor safe, and then everything goes to shit. Everything yeah. immediately goes straight to hell. Stands up, pulls the gun out, and it's all downhill from there, literally. Yeah, and <laughs> what I love in the, as soon as the scene it starts, this no one is actually afraid of Todd. He right. he yells at the bodyguard to stop. And not to reach into his jacket, and the bodyguard. And he just is, goes ahead <laughs> and reaches into his jacket. He's still reaching in, and then yeah. and then Brehad runs for his gun and just starts clicking until the Russian roulette comes up, bang, and shoots him in the shoulder. And so <laughs> no one is afraid of Todd in this scene. Everyone realizes Todd is a, is kind of an idiot, right? But but through chance and fortuitousness, he doesn't die when the first shot hits him. So he gets to gun down the poor bodyguard. I feel bad for the bodyguard in this scene, man. What a horrible job to work for Brehad. He, he he was an innocent bystander in all this, really. <laughs> He's got the worst boss possible. He's just trying to yeah. keep this moron psychopath safe. <laughs> right. And and then some other moron psychopath guns him down in the middle of the scene. Um, but then, so... <laughs> and, that, go but, ahead, and, sorry. No, um, 
but then after Todd after Todd gets shot and he gets back up and he keeps shooting, he still keeps talking. <laughs> and that's where we get this third amazing moment of Thomas Jane's performance where he's like trying yeah. to convince his friends to go into the bedroom to get this money and he yeah. starts crying. He starts crying. It's so incredible. <laughs> it is I mean it is like a just this amazing moment where it is clear that he is just not he has lost contact with what is a, a smart and real thing to do in this moment. He's yeah. weeping almost about like, we have to go into the bedroom and get the money. I mean, it is, it is, this is a brave performance from Thomas Jane. It is. Especially for a guy who comes off as such a macho jerk earlier on in the movie. He loses it in this scene in kind of a sad way. It's not the kind of, like, we're used to these kinds of, like, crazy friend loses his mind scenes mm-hmm. in movies. But the fact that it's clear somewhere in his head, he knows he's already gone over the line too. He knows this is his rock bottom as well. And and, and prior to this scene, Todd was a character we liked. Yeah, yeah. He, he was he was and, and friendly. That's a, that, he was friendly, and that's another thing about that long shot on Dirk when he when he has his realization. Uh, on some level, he's realizing that if I don't do something, I could one day be Todd. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he and and this is yeah. this is a great like you know like ludicrous take on the on the you know dr- like addiction rock bottom scene because you kind of yeah. get both people's rock bottom and and Todd's rock bottom is just is depressingly terrible, just yeah. like a really yeah. series of terrible decisions. You you get both rock bottoms, but it never feels preachy like it would in another movie. Totally, because you don't feel like they learn a lesson other than my life sucks. That's pretty much yeah, the only lesson. That's the extent learns. of it. <laughs> um, then so after so Todd freaks out. He goes into the bedroom, and you get actually one of my favorite shot selections in the in this sequence, which is. You get a shot which is almost point of view from in the bedroom. The door opens up, yes. Todd walks in, and then his chest, and his just chest explodes. explodes. <laughs> <laughs> that shotgun goes off and just, just um, kills him immediately. And then it cuts back to Alfred Molina, and he's holding this gun. He takes a beat, and then he just starts, ah! <laughs> he loses it, runs out into the door, starts calling them puppies, which is just one of the most yeah. ridiculous possible statements. I mean, just like the fact that he starts shouting puppies in this scene is yeah. is great. But yeah, he loses it, he runs out, and it's, and it's, it's just a terrible shot, thankfully, because our characters get out. But he just, his him and this shotgun is suddenly, now we finally have bangs that... that are terrifying you know now we have yeah. this series of gunshots that are everything that the firecrackers presaged mm-hmm. to us and, I, and when they're running out i love this shot as soon as they exit the door at first it kind of seems like it's a point of view from alfred molina's character but like the closer it gets to them the more you realize it's not but it's just this like it looks like it's handheld just racing at them trying to get into the car and uh he sh- uh alfred molina shoots the car's window out and dirk falls back on his ass and it's just like it is the worst thing that could possibly happen that is a great shot that is it's awesome because it it's probably a steady cam shot because it's just a little too smooth but because it's going downstairs sure. it has that handheld kind of feel to it yeah you're right it's it's great um and actually this is another time when the sound design is really important because so when the guy, as soon as Todd stands up to start doing his nonsense, the, the mm-hmm. song changes from Jesse's Girl to 99 Luft Balloons. Right. <laughs> and we get 99 Luft Balloons over most of this ludicrous, horrible action scene when half the characters die. Mm-hmm. Um, as soon as we run out of the house, the sound, the, once again, the song is gone. We get, right. we get soundtrack now, actually. There's like a little bit of drum music that's basically the actual film's soundtrack. Yeah, the point. score. Yeah, but we don't the the, song, the music, the pop music only exists within Rahad's house. Right. As soon as they're outside, the, it's it's actually abrupt. It's it's a little jarring. It is. Yeah. Um. One thing I realized, I don't know if you so ninety nine Luftballons plays over the scene. Mm-hmm. I actually had to go look up when the movie was made because um, Gross Point Blank uses ninety nine Luftballons in almost the exact same capacity. Does it? I, I've seen that movie, but not for a long time. There's a sequence near the end of the movie in in um in Gross Point Blank when an assassin attacks him and he kills the assassin. And as soon as um uh, oh god, I can't think of who the the actress is. And I love her, and I'm blanking on her name. I, oh man, um, I'm, I'm an idiot. Yeah. So Mini uh, Driver, yeah, Mini Driver, Mini Driver yeah. runs and sees the dead body. And when as soon as she sees the dead body, Nine Line Luft Balloon starts, and it plays over a sequence of them trying to get rid of the body. So it's another kind of manic post-action sequence with this playing. And I was curious which did it first. Was one of them ripping off the other mm-hmm. in terms of the use of it? And no, they both came out in 1997. That's right. So yeah. these two movies both kind of used 99 Luft Balloons as this. 
counterpoint to horrific violence in their own ways. They they both kind of came at it in this sort of sardonic use of this song to go it's, against action. It's so funny when that happens with movies and even with TV, how the two movies within a given year will have a similar moment or use a song in a similar way that kind of gives you an idea of what the what the social consciousness is within filmmaking circles is at the moment. <laughs> yeah, you, it's, that, it's that kind of collective um, unconscious thing, you know, where... Yeah. where like, like, I remember in uh, 2012, there were th- there were two movies and one TV show that all used the song I Want to See the Bright Lights Tonight by Richard and Linda Thompson. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, you expect, like, maybe if it's in the studio system, maybe, you know, that kind of traveled through the studio. But these are two right. relatively indie movies. You know, sometimes that's why you get these things where it's like, these are not movies that had any communication with each other. These yeah. are both, you know, kind of auteurist statements on... And at this point, this is an older song, too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've kind of hit... That is the one thing. You know, we, we did hit that moment of, like, 80s revival because, yeah. you know, this is this is the year of both Gross Point Blank and um, Romy and Michelle's High School Reunion, which are both 80s throwback right. movies. And then this is sort of a 70s into 80s throwback mm-hmm. movie. So we were certainly hitting that point where 80s were the nostalgia, mm-hmm. um, which accounts for part of it. But it is interesting when those those things use it. But... But I, I do like it. It's a great song for that because it's this. It's a. It's just. It is. It's a great pop song as pop songs go. Ninety nine Luft Balloons is just a phenomenal song, and mm-hmm. having it play over a sequence of people getting gunned down and and in some ways it doesn't even counterpoint it so much as just kind of feed into the energy of the scene because it's such like a weird upbeat song and everyone else is so manic in this scene. And and, and the the song itself starts out kind of mellow too and builds to that <laughs> upbeat. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it actually it basically hits it right when he goes through the door, I think. When he yeah, goes and right before he gets shot. Yeah. We yeah. get that we get the sort of singing bit and then he goes in and as soon as the actual beat starts is basically when Alfred Molina runs out with the shotgun and starts getting everyone down. Right. That's Which so is, awesome. <laughs> Paul, Anderson is a great a great use of music and this is a great use of music movie overall. Um but that's a really awesome awesome use of music to like trigger you into the next phase of the scene. Absolutely. Um so the final phase of the scene. Yes, we get to we get into the the outside bit, I guess. Mm. Here, the 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 um the chase down the road. Yeah. In the car. Uh, D- Dirk and Reed are heading for the car. Rahad's chasing chasing them from behind, still with the shotgun. Blowing windows out of Blow, blows the window out. Dirk falls on his ass. The car starts moving, and there's this great shot from the passenger seat of the car of just like the door <laughs> closing as it starts to move, and you can see uh, Rahad a little bit in the background, still coming at them with the gun. <laughs> I, I I love this. I love this bit because you know Rahad is fairly ineffective with the shotgun because the shotgun is just not meant for this kind of thing and the car takes most of the damage but yeah it's 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 interesting because this is not a movie with action in it but you know we it, it this is like about f- like 15 seconds of chase movie you know yeah. going on with this and i love that it it picks up he runs out of the house he guns at the car and the car gets away and Rahad just sort of walks back into the house yeah like oh well that the, just happened <laughs> this scene just sort of like trails off i love it you expect there to be some like real bit but as soon as he's away he's away because the guy's a crackhead with a shotgun he's not he's not trying to leave his house tonight (laughs) yeah and and then and we get so it said like and i like that because of the nature of the scene uh reed runs off so we actually runs off we we were forced to stay with dirk through the end of the scene as he realizes exactly how screwed up his life has become right and that after he does finally get into the car, there's a great shot from behind the steering wheel, like uh, with Dirk looking into his rearview mirror, and the back window of the car just explodes. That and they, uh, the Coens did that same exact shot in No Country for Old Men ten years later. Did they? It's the Actually, same shot, yeah. basically. Same shot, yeah. Oh, I love it. Yeah, that's great. It's a great shot of the window exploding. Yeah. Um, and then uh, something you pointed out: the car does take most of the damage in this scene. At the end of the sequence, obviously Dirk realizes that his car is out of gas. I wonder. I wonder if it was like that beforehand, or if it just leaked out after the gas tank got <laughs> shot. <laughs> and it's hard to tell because he's so he's yeah. such a mess at this point. He he yeah. easily could have gone to an idiotic drug deal with an empty tank of gas. You know, yeah. like you, that, he is exactly that, the type of person to have done that. That's true. But the gun. But yeah, the car also could have. Oh, yeah. leaked. I do love that. It's maybe an on-the-nose metaphor, but it's a great metaphor that his car is now out of gas. 
right. at this moment. That even his car doesn't want to go on. And then s- something else I noticed, Dirk is driving away. He's like beating the steering wheel. Just uh, He starts to cry. He's so panicked. He realizes the car is on empty. And it's it's still nighttime out at this point. But then it cuts to a scene that looks as though it's the next morning with the Dirk just slowly rolling the car up. (laughs) (laughs) This has been all night of him trying to get this car going. His his dark night of the soul literally (laughs) is over. (laughs) There's this one brief set of of shot selection that I want to mention before we get done with the scene because it's a classic Paul Thomas Anderson technique. When he gets in the car um, and the car stalled, so he has to turn the key and we get this series of, of very close shots, which is, again, one of those Paul Thomas Anderson things. We get the key turning, we get the the stick shift moving, we get his foot on the gas, and it's like this collection of shots that gets across an action. And d- directors handle communicating a complicated action in different ways, and one of the ways Paul Thomas Anderson has always done it is very fast cuts showing close-ups right. of the action at hand. Um, and he does this a lot before the scene, like the entry point to the scene in the first place was them um, packing up pa- the, the fake coke, and Ex- grabbing the keys? Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And you get that here, where it's like yeah. key turning, car, you know, foot on clutch, <laughs> shift gear shifting, foot on gas. You know, and you get every. It's very carefully selected shots that mm. give you the sequence of actions that the yeah. person is doing, but never so long that it gets boring. I think it's just a really brilliant way of communicating a complicated action in a way that you understand what's going on without the 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 momentum of the scene dying. Yeah, without having to over-explain it. That, that, that's another thing with that shot selection leading up to this sequence. I, I watched that little scene but prior to this scene, and I was just like, I bet Edgar Wright loves this movie. <laughs> you, you know, I didn't think about that. Edgar Wright uses those same kinds of shots. He does it the a little same, differently. The same, the, but Yeah, yeah. The, the, the same quick cuts with a similar rhythm. Yeah, that, I never I never thought about that, but you're absolutely correct. That is a, And that's sort of a signature Edgar Wright thing. Edgar Wright tends to pair them with very specific sound effects. Yeah. Just sort of his twist on that idea, but mm-hmm. I really do love that. That I love Paul Thomas Anderson's um, close-ups, and you know, one thing I learned as a filmmaker myself watching the commentary for this movie, and it wasn't in this scene, but was there's a scene of a record needle going on a record, and he had mentioned that when you do ultra close-ups, you can choose one thing to be in focus, and nothing else will be. You know, right. you can choose the needle. And everything else will be out of focus. Or you can choose the record groove, and the record groove will be in focus and nothing else. And, I, and that was one of those things I, I, I sort of I immediately stuck in my head and kept on, hold on to. That, that when you get that close, you can only focus on one deal, one detail. And I think that's a really good thing to, to remember right. in, these, like, in these scenes. That, and that's why they're good, because only one thing can be in focus. It immediately locks that, your eye on the thing that you're supposed to look at. And that's the point of the extreme close-up anyway, to focus your eye on that thing. And, and, and the focus work just adds to that. Yeah, right, because you yeah. still have a giant frame. And what's great is that way you can close up on something. That's fo- so you can focus on the idea of a foot on the pedal. But you get the, the toe is what's most in focus. So you get the action of that toe more than anything else. Even if you're not thinking right. about it, your mind focuses on the one in focus point in the shot. So it actually leads you it, – it just it's amazing that it, it keys you in exactly where you want to be keyed into. Yeah, um, just great a great stuff. scene. Just a great, great scene, man. This is. The, I am so glad you chose the scene, even though this is actually. I thought that Greg chose Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and I thought that scene was going to kill me. Yeah. This was actually an incredibly difficult scene for me to to come up with a a uh, technique to discuss. I'm usually have been better at, at coming up with a focus, and this we we, we really kind of well, like you said. There's one. just there's just so much in it. Yeah. <laughs> it, 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 it was, I, I started to take notes when I was rewatching the scene earlier today, but I very quickly just gave up because there, there's too much. There's too much. It is. I, th- I think we've hit a lot of the important things though. We have, we have, it's a, it's a, it's a complicated scene and it's, and mm-hmm. it, and it really shows that Paul Thomas Anderson's technique is it feels very um, intuitive as opposed to a lot of directors who feel very intellectual about their technique. I get the feeling that, especially from this movie that Paul, that you know, Pete Anderson really feels his scenes in a way. He feels his scenes and per- perhaps sh- le- shoots them or lets them play out in a way that's more organic than perhaps a director who's more controlled, like, say, Stanley Kubrick 
possibly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Where, where you really feel it. Um, I want to point out really that the editing is by Dylan. I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Tichenor, 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 maybe. Um, great. The editing is fantastic. We mentioned the fact mm-hmm. that that we get the feeling that he that Anderson's scenes are constructed somewhat in editing. So you have to mention the yeah. editor because those are an, that is an unsung hero of film. And and uh, Anderson Absolutely. movie is edited really well. So so editors ed- editors can make or break a scene. Yeah, especially you know when you're an ed- when you're a filmmaker like Hitchcock who basically storyboards your scenes before scenes before you shoot them, and thus you're only shooting what you need. Okay, the editor in that case is unfortunately probably the slave to his storyboards. But in right. in, a, in the majority of filmmaking scenes, it's the editor who finds the rhythm that the director intends. Right. And and this is a and Dylan is it works it's with a, huge, a lot of stuff. It, it, it's a huge responsibility because like yes you're responsible for the greatness of some of these scenes but it's also on you if if a scene isn't working. Yeah. And and not a lot of directors can communicate exactly what they want. You know, they're communicating right. a feel and they can tell when it's right or wrong, but yeah. it's on Cause, you. Cuz a scene a scene could be completely and totally there on the page and on the set the day they shot, but if it's not edited with absolute precision, something could be off and an audience is going to know that. Exactly. And and, yeah. and 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 Paul Thomas Anderson movies are masterstrokes of editing. You know, all yeah. of his movies. I mean, Magnolia might all be his- the top of it, but it's they're all masterstrokes. Agreed. Agreed. So, um, well, Joe, thank you so much for being here with me to discuss uh, one of my favorite scenes and one of my favorite movies. It, it just a real pleasure to discuss this scene with you. Thank you for having me, dude. It's been it's been rewarding. Like I've I've loved this scene for so long. It's been rewarding to finally just sit down and talk with someone about why it's as great as it is. Same feeling. Same feeling. Yeah. Um, before we um let you go, can you uh, you want to tell the audience where they can find you online? Um, you can find you can follow me on Twitter at Toasted Schizo. Again, that's S C H I Z O. And you can watch my short films and other such whimsies at youtube.com slash toasted schizo. Thank you, Joe. I am Eric Sippel. I'm the host of Making the Scene. You can find me on Twitter at Salon, that's S-A-A-L-O-N. And this podcast, as well as my rambling writings, can be found on my blog at salonmoyo, S-A-A-L-O-N-M-U-Y-O.com. Um, thank you for listening, everyone. We'll be back next time with another great scene. 